Hello and welcome to Humans of Open Source, a podcast where we talk to the humans working in open source software and hear their stories. I'm your host, Sean Chen, and today we're going to be talking with John Jensett. John is a PhD candidate at MIT, specifically in their Parallel and Distributed Operating Systems group. John is also a well-known live streamer and contributor in the Rust ecosystem. We asked John what it feels like to finally be leaving academia, what he's looking for in his next gig, as well as some of his thoughts on teaching and lecturing. We also talked a little bit about Mozilla, but please keep in mind that this conversation happened before the recent Mozilla layoffs. So without further ado, let's head on over to the conversation. John, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. It's uh, it's pretty sweltering because I'm sitting like directly in the sun at the front, uh, but the AC is going, so I'm 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 surviving. I'm hanging on there. How are you doing, Sean? I'm pretty good. It's not not too terribly hot here, although I do have to turn off my AC because my AC is kind of ridiculously loud, and I don't want that getting kicked up. So you're finishing up your PhD relatively soon, is that right? Yeah, it's a pretty weird situation because. I've been in the PhD program at MIT now for six years. I went back and did some like calculations and I started my bachelor's in 2008. And I've basically been in various parts of academia since. And so I'm, I'm from Norway originally. So I started my bachelor's in Norway and I was there for a year and then went, I need to go somewhere else. I then moved to Australia to finish my bachelor's. Then I moved to England to do a master's. And then I moved here to do a PhD. So I've just been a student for a really long time. And it is kind of weird for it to be coming to a close. I guess I'm curious what, what it was about Norway where you were just like, I need to get out. I mean, I don't think it was so much that I needed to get out of Norway as just I'd been in the same place for so long and I wanted to experience something different. And so Australia seemed pretty different. So I went there. It wasn't even for any good reason. It was just like a friend of mine was starting his studies there. And I think sort of as a joke, just went, hey, do you want to like, you should just come move to Australia and go to the same uni. And I was like, sure, why not? And then moved on like three months notice. I'd be curious as well then to hear about how did you even get started in, in programming? That's a good question. Like my journey sort of started with programming in like Windows shell script because I thought viruses were cool and interesting. How old? I must have been like, I don't know, 14. And to me, like a virus was like cool, but my idea of a virus was like very different. So I wrote like a batch script that would open and close your CD drive like three times and then power off your computer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then I gave it like a cool looking icon and named it something else and then like sent it to people. <laughs> and so it was like not a virus <laughs> at all. But 14 year old me thought it was really cool that like that was a thing you could do. And I think I, I ended up doing like some visual basic stuff where I, I built like a simple like Minesweeper clone because Visual Basic was super visual in how you built stuff. And then it really led into web programming. So I did a lot of PHP and then it sort of just sort of snowballed into more and more and more programming. I think it's it's just always fascinated me to like be able to make the computer do stuff. It's just cool. And I think from a very early age, I was like, I wonder what else I can make the computer do. I think a lot, huge part of your branding is maybe a little bit reliant on Rust, or at least it is to me. Watching your live streams, seeing how much you teach, what attracted you to Rust in the first place? Why Rust, not some other language, I suppose? Hmm. It's a good question. So up through the years, I sort of left web programming behind. I've done a little bit of it, sort of like Ruby on Rails, a little bit like Django, that sort of stuff. But I think... Around when I started my bachelor's, I realized that systems programming was something I found interesting, like the sort of 
lower level, like working with data structures and algorithms and making things go fast, that kind of stuff was interesting. And I've also always been interested in different programming languages. So I've like experimented with Haskell and like Perl, which is a pretty wide range of languages. And sort of got a lot of exposure to Java and C and C++, sort of traditional languages as well. And I think what happened was I just kept working on things that were low level. Like for my master's and right after my master's, I worked on indoor localization with Wi-Fi, which was like a high performance system that was like GPU enabled to do all this like fancy stuff really quickly. There, that was like a huge C++ code base. And then when I saw Rust come out as a language, I was like, this seems like a language that targets the kind of things that I like building. And so it wasn't even necessarily that I was like, this language is going to, this language is superior anyway. It was just like, this is another language that I get to try and that might be good for what I like building. Hmm. And then I started using it and sort of haven't stopped. It just replaced pretty much all other languages for me, except for, for things for very particular purposes. Hmm. But I find that it gives me the right kind of balance between being able to express my thoughts in code using like the more elaborate type system while also giving me the flexibility and freedom to build low level, high performance, intricate data structure, concurrency type stuff, which I love building. Yeah. So it just sits at a, at a nice intersection for me, I think. What was then the impetus for you to go into a PhD? Like, why not right after your master's go work at a company? What led to the PhD? I think mostly stubbornness, which is maybe a weird answer. But okay, so I have this memory when I was, I don't know, like 13, 14 of reading up on the interwebs and just being fascinated how so many of the cool things I read about came out of MIT. And then being like, I want to go to MIT. Of course, as a 13-year-old kid in Norway, you have to understand Norway is a very different educational system mm -hmm. than the US. Very few people from Norway go on to like high level universities in the US. No one knows what the SAT is in Norway. And of course, trying to apply to a high level US university out of Norway, like there are just no resources for doing so. You're entirely on your own. And so I actually applied for MIT four times before I got in. Wow. So okay. I applied straight out of high school. And got to know because I, I did not know what I was doing. Like my teachers were like not used to writing references. They don't rate students. Like that's just not a thing. And so my application must have looked really <laughs> weird. I applied after one year of, of a Norwegian university. And that didn't really improve my chances because the professors there were sort of the same. And then I went to Australia and I applied to MIT out of my bachelor's there. But there I have the problem that my references were from relatively unknown professors from a relatively unknown university. So I didn't get in. And then it was only when I applied out of like a pretty good university in like London. That was the time that I finally made it. I think it was really just a matter of like perseverance. I've wanted to go there for so long. And so now I'm going to go there, damn it. <laughs> I think it was that kind of feeling. Although realistically, I think also I recognize that in the academic setting, you have a lot of freedom to sort of just tinker with things. And I think I wanted to keep doing that. I wanted to have the ability to keep tinkering at least for a bit longer. And a PhD seemed pretty appropriate for that. So I think a combination of, of those two things. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of stories I've heard from people who were like, I'm going to go work at Google, damn it. And it takes them like yep. four cracks in the Google interview before they finally get in. That's really <laughs> funny. Wow. So so that's interesting then, because since you were 13, had built up MIT in a way, and then you got in and you've spent the last six years now working there. And finally, this phase of your life is almost coming to an end. Yeah, it's it's a really weird feeling because... I mean, I had no idea what it what MIT meant or what it meant to go there. Like, you have to realize, as a 13-year-old kid, I was just like, MIT sounds like a cool place. I had no mm -hmm. idea what being there entailed or that it would be, like, difficult or anything. That, that was just not on my radar at the time. So did it meet or exceed all your expectations being a student there, finally? Life is weird that way in that things get normal pretty quickly. It would, there's sort of a natural ramp up, right? Like if you're in a position where you can get into MIT, chances are you're already at a level that's somewhat near MIT. 
I think when I got there, it was sort of what I expected, which meant that it wasn't that big of a surprise, if that makes sense. What's particularly weird to me is now that it's almost done, figuring out what's next is a really weird feeling because this has sort of been my stretch goal, right? For a very long time. And now it's just like, well, I did that. Now what? (laughs) Exactly. Which is a, which is a pretty good segue to the next topic, which is you mentioned that you're moving to LA. I think it looked like it was for a girl from (laughs) from what I read on Twitter. I'm moving to LA because my girlfriend is getting into voice acting and all of the sort of acting and creative arts basically require you to be through LA. It's not quite true, but it's kind of true. And it's funny because neither of us really want to live in LA. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I'm from Europe and I think she's pretty excited about Europe. And so it might be that we end up going there someday. But for right now, that's basically where she needs to go. And so that's where I'm going. I'm going there and my plan is to sort of experience everything the West Coast has to offer in that sense. It doesn't really matter to me that much where I live because what I work with is so international anyway. But I'm basically moving there to be with her and work there until we move elsewhere. So like for at least a couple of years and then we'll see after that. Good luck with the move. (laughs) Thank you. I hope it goes (laughs) safely and smoothly and you end up. I'm not actually that concerned about the move. Like I think for many people moving is it's like this momentous part of your life where you're like uprooting your life one place and you need to seek out how you're going to establish yourself in this new place. But, but like for me, this is the fourth time I do like mm. a major move. And this one is shorter than most of my other moves, gotcha. even though it's East to West coast. So I'm mm. actually mostly just excited which is good. The thing that adds the most co- sort of complexity is really just dealing with like work permits and visas and like finding a place to live when you can't even go there because of the current climate. There are just some logistical issues that need to be sorted out. But the move itself, I, I'm all ready for it. Like I'm ready to go. <laughs> cool. So we should probably get on to the main topic here. I typically ask people about your thoughts on open source. How did you first get into open source and what keeps you around? I think where I started was, as I mentioned, I did a bunch of web development in the early days, a lot of PHP. And I don't know where this urge came from, but I like I dislike when work is repeated. Mm. And so in other words, I like sharing my work so that other people don't have to repeat it. And so there's this website called phpclasses.net or something. They used to have this really ugly, like blue, weird design with the PHP elephant. And you could basically like share PHP classes and that did like various different things. And so when I wrote things, I would share them there and then people would use them and give me comments and that there was sort of a positive reinforcement loop of like, let me keep sharing things. And then I think that made me realize that there's value in sharing your work online. And so as I kept working on programming, basically, whenever I encountered a problem with something I was using, it was just my natural instinct to go look at the code and be like, well, why is this broken? And can I help fix it? And so I think really what happened was early on, I got sort of instilled with this mentality of dealing with code in public is good. And therefore, that that just became the mentality going forward. Hmm. And it's interesting, because I think this leads into a lot of open source development. Like, if you like, if you have a problem with some piece of software, try to figure out how to fix it or what's wrong. Like, read the code and just don't be scared about looking projects up. I finally, I think, in the last few months, got into Rust open source. It really is intimidating, and I think that was also a big part of the motivation for why I even wanted to to start this podcast. Was I wanted to humanize the people working in open source? I want to showcase that you know, again, we're all humans. We all have flaws, we all have fears, and that we're all just normal people working on this software to try to make it a little bit less intimidating. I think you had a good insight that maybe the reason why many people are, I don't know if frightened is the right word, but the reason why many people feel like open source is something that other developers do rather than Mm -hmm. something that they're a part of is because they have that feeling of, they see these usernames that are really active in the open source community. And they're like, those people know a lot more than I do. That's why they're doing this stuff. So why should I mingle with them? 
And what you're doing with this podcast, and, and one of the reasons I think it's such a, an important project, is to try to break down that barrier and make it clear that like we're also just developers. And many of us have built this up over many, many years ourselves. And and we're also just programmers. Like we're not superhumans in in any way. I think there are some skills you learn over time when you interact with the open source community, but the barrier to entry is actually pretty low in terms of technology. The barrier is more one of human emotions and taking that first step into it. Right. I looked at Rayon pretty early on, uh, maybe a year or two ago. And especially for me back then, that code base just seemed impenetrable. It's just like this huge wall. And I'm like, what is going on? Where do I start? Now I have a little bit more of an idea of how to navigate a large code base like that. But for a new person trying to get into open source, it really is kind of like you said, it's all emotional. It's all mental. I'm not saying it's not real, but it's kind of built up in your head, right? And it's like everyone has to get over that mental hurdle some way or another. Yeah, I think maybe my my advice to people who find themselves in that position beyond just like get to know the people is don't try to contribute to like core libraries or anything at first. You can probably do that, but chances are those those code bases have seen so much work that they might be pretty intimidating to step into. Start with something that's like motivated by your own need. And usually that's going to be something application facing, right? Like either because you're just running a program that happens to be written in Rust and it doesn't do whatever thing you want it to do or it does something wrong and you start filing an issue and then maybe you could take a stab at fixing it. And so you sort of get in the soft way of there's a particular thing that you are driven by and therefore you want to see it through. And it might even not start with reading the code. It might just start with there's a problem and you want to figure out how to stop having that problem because it's annoying you. And the other side is like you are building an application in Rust and you're using some library and that library has something you want to fix in it. And in both of those cases, it's unlikely that the thing that's having a problem is some like really core thing that's hugely technical. Chances are that the problem is relatively surface level, at least in your first few encounters with the language. And then as you get more experience, you sort of get to dive deeper and deeper into that stack as you gain more experience with the things that are in between. I think a big problem for me personally, I'm very impatient in that sense where I spend maybe a few days looking at a code base when I'm like, oh, I need to start contributing now. And for whatever reason, this is just this feeling that I have, like I need to be productive now. And I just kind of discount how much time it even takes to just digest the entire code base. How long would you say it would take you to kind of digest a large code base? So it's hard for me to answer because that's just not how I read code. Like, it's very rare that I open a project and just read the code base. I've seen this recommended some places, and it's weird to me because you're likely to just get impatient reading it. Instead, what I much more commonly do is there's a particular thing that I need to know how it works. Like, uh, what's an example of this? Let's imagine that you're doing, you need to sort an array. Uh, and so you're going to use the standard library sort. And you want to know what happens if two elements are equal, whether their position gets swapped or not in the array. Because for whatever reason, that matters to your application. And let's say the documentation doesn't say. My instinct would be like, click the source button and read what the function does. And usually that's how I consume a code base. It's like bit by bit of the things that I'm using. And then after a while, you end up having consumed the whole code base. You get a sense for how things fit together. But it's very rare that I actually sort of read the whole thing. Right. That's a good point. And I think a big part of this also is if you just read a whole code base, you get the wrong impression, right? You get the impression that like some really smart person sat down and just wrote this thing. And that's just never how these things are developed. If you look at some of the really core, like tricky libraries, like, Sin or OneCell or Rayon as a good example too, their code bases are quite intricate, but they didn't start out that way, right? They started with some naive implementation and then someone found a problem and then they found a way to fix it and then they iterate. And then they found a neat solution mm-hmm. to something. It's rare that it's just one person just put like their thoughts into the computer and it worked, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was just born as is, yeah. as, as you're reading and, it right now. Yeah. Uh, my way of thinking of open source, I think, is 
you can be a part of that process. Like all these code bases are continuously improving mm. by small amounts. But the only way they improve by small amounts is if someone reports something that can be improved and then tries to improve it, right? And you can be a part of that. Mm -hmm. So when yeah. you're contributing to open source for the first time, all you have to do is contribute a delta, right? You're not contributing a whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think one trick, if you want to call it that, that I have now started doing to kind of combat this is I will go and look at pieces of the commit history. So there are times, you know, I have gone to a really complex library and opened up and scrolled all the way back to like very early commits to give myself some idea of what that process was like, how this entire code base was iterated on. And I think that would be a really interesting feature on GitHub for them to make that more front and center, telling the story of a code base through time. Yeah, this, this is something I do sometimes too, although I do it in a, a slightly smaller scope where it's usually like a particular function. Like this happens sometimes for my live streams where I'm like, build something that happens to be in the standard library because I want to showcase it. And then I look at the code in the standard library after and realize that the standard library does it in a different way than I did it. And my immediate instinct mm. is, why are they doing it this way? Because that means that they, like, it could be that I did something super smart, but that seems less likely. Instead, it seems like they had a smarter uh -huh. thought than I did, and I want to learn from it. And so that's when I, I sort of mm. take that function and look at it and first try to figure out what it does and why, why it might be better, but then look through, well, how did it get here, right? So you look at something like the git blame or whatever of that function and you look at, well, what was the last thing that changed it? All right, this commit. What's the reasoning behind this commit? And then you keep iterating back until you sort of get a feel for how that function is developed over time. And this also helps it become a bit less overwhelming because you don't need to understand the whole code base. All you need to understand is that function that you already know why is useful because you're using it or implementing it. I think that's actually a pretty good segue, but we're both teachers in a sense. I do it more for my full-time job, but as a PhD student, I'm sure you do a lot of teaching as well. Your Rust live streams are very much through the lens of teaching. And I'm sure you must have TA'd classes and taught lectures as well. I've seen your lectures on your missing CS education. I thought it was really funny how you guys were lecturing on, on a chalkboard about Git. I thought that was just very funny and surreal to me. <laughs> that class was a funny, a funny thing to build too, because this is the second instantiation of that class we've run. We ran it in 2019 and called it Hacker Tools and got a fairly different mm. audience who were maybe expecting something else, uh, even <laughs> though we tried to make it very clear. And then we called it Missing Semester this time around. And we spent a really long time trying to figure out what things do we want to cover in this class? What do we actually think is missing as opposed to like things that should be taught in a university? And that's how we landed on some of the kind of weird topics, like wanting to teach the underlying data model of Git, because we think that people spend a lot of their time interacting with Git and learning the data model is actually worthwhile. And that's why we did it. Or like mm -hmm. why we decided to not teach something like IDEs is something we didn't really cover because there are a lot of IDs, there are a lot of ways to use them. We don't really have any right answers. And so really what we wanted to do is give people an understanding of what can they look up on their own and what kind of things are worth learning, the sort of smaller skills. That was a pretty fun class to teach. And I've done some other TAing as well of like MIT classes, and that's been really fun too. I just, I really enjoy teaching uh, as is probably apparent from like my public persona. It just gives me a lot whenever I feel like other people understand things as a result of me telling them stuff. Yeah, for sure. I can definitely relate to that. Is there a possibility in your future of leading more into teaching than what I imagine you just working as a quote unquote normal developer? It's complicated. I have been in academia long enough now that I'm pretty sure I don't want to work in academia for a couple of different reasons that we can we can go into if you want. But the core of it, I think, is that academic research, I think, is not where I should be. It's not the kind of things that like satisfied some of my, my needs. And the big part of that is I want to feel like I'm doing things that are immediately useful to a large number of people. And academia isn't really focused on that to some extent for good reason. But like, I enjoy writing up 
blog post that teaches many people about things in simple ways. I like doing my live streams because I feel like they're approachable to a large number of people. Writing academic papers, you are making intellectual contributions to the world, but they're much more niche. Now, of course, being a teacher at a university could be really fun, but it's sort of hard to get one without the other. It's not impossible, but it's a little hard. And I also worry that that might become too one-sided on the teaching part. I think, at least for me, a big part of teaching is having something interesting to teach that's not just the material that's already out there. That's not to say that that's not important. Like There are always new people who don't know it. But for me, I think a big part of the value comes from creating something with the people I'm teaching. That just gives me a lot of satisfaction. And I think for me that 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 sweet middle ground lies in working on something that exposes me to interesting problems and then having the teaching bit be teaching people about things that I've learned in that context. In some sense, this is what happened with Rust for me. Okay. Like I started learning Rust because I decided to use it in my research project. And as a part of that, I like picked up a lot of knowledge about Rust and I wanted to share that with people. And so my videos actually started out from, here's the thing I need for my research project. Why don't I build it in public? And I like having this sort of productive synergy between these two things where one can inform the other. One thing that I think I'd be interested to hear your opinion on is I'm kind of of the philosophy that lecturing sucks. I heard a really great podcast from a bunch of math educators and the title of the podcast was lecturing equals bloodletting. So they were making this analogy that lecturing is to teaching what bloodletting used to be in the medical profession. I've read as well a couple of education papers coming out of Stanford where they did research on the effectiveness of lecturing. And it seems to be that lecturing really is not that much more effective than just handing the student a textbook and telling them to read it. Um, well, so I, I have many thoughts on this topic. Let me try to, to break them down into useful chunks. So I think you're right. I think that there is a lot of inertia in academia for doing things the way we're currently doing it. One of the big reasons why universities are sticking to lecturing is just because that's what they know and they don't have a better alternative. And in particular, I don't think they have a better alternative that works with the set of people that they have. You have the set of professors and you can try to tell them to work differently and to teach differently, but the professors have like this inertia as well that means they're hesitant to sort of throw away all the things they know. And there are some professors who are really good classroom teachers. In those classes, I think lectures work really well. It's just that a lot of them are not, and that's where the problem arises. I think for Missing Semester, the, the reason we did it this way was actually more so because we wanted to get the video material out there. Having the class in person didn't really matter to us. Like whether people showed up to lecture was not important to us. What mattered was we got to present it in a place that has facilities for presenting things. And we got to get it recorded with decently good equipment. So that was really the impetus. In fact, some of the lectures, I mean, you can't see this because the camera is behind, but some of the lectures, the hall was basically empty. Like we had one or two students and that was fine because what we wanted to do was just get the content out there and then people can watch it on our own time. We were expecting the vast majority of viewers, in fact, the way it turned out, to watch the things online at their own pace. Now, I think one thing that is perhaps useful in this context is that it's much easier to teach if you have an interactive audience with you. They don't have to be there in person, mm -hmm. but if you get the feedback from the people you're trying to teach in the moment, it helps a lot. This is why I think, for example, office hours is a place where people learn a lot. Yeah. Is because as the teacher, you can, you can sit next to the person and look at their face and realize that they're not understanding the thing you're trying to tell them. And then you can try a different approach. If I'm just producing content that people will consume on their own time, I can't tailor the pace or the, the depth or the language to the people listening, which is sort of an advantage of small-scale lectures. Large-scale lectures, of course, you can't really tailor because there are too many people. But this is why, for example, for my live streams, it helps so much to have an audience. 
I think if I recorded a video, it would be much worse because I couldn't guide how I explain things based on whether people are understanding. And I don't know of a good way to get that kind of two-way communication to happen through another medium, except having way more professors with fewer students. Now, it varies based on the student too, right? Mm -hmm. Like some people learn much better from watching at their own pace. Some people really just want to sit down and like read things over and over until they get them. Some people just want to work through it on their own. And I think these people need different teaching tools. I do think that there's a commonality there in that the teaching is better if it adapts to you. And I don't quite know how to get that with another form than like person-to-person communication. I mean, it could be digital, like in the case of my live streams, but I think there's a really valuable aspect in that adaptive part of teaching. In my case, I teach large lectures. Oh yeah, those I think are much harder to argue why are useful. Unless you have like a body of students that are very inquisitive and good at like asking questions. And that's relatively rare, especially because there seems to be this weird correlation where the larger the body of students, the fewer people ask questions. Now, I think there are ways to combat this too. Like at some of the MIT classes I've helped TA, I actually built this tool called Icebreaker, which was a website where one of the TAs would sit and monitor this website and students could submit questions anonymously, but they would go to the TA and then the TA would ask the question. And so that way you still get Everyone still hears the question. It's still asked in public. It still interrupts the lecture. And it still gives the lecturer the feedback that there are questions coming and what those are, but without the sort of fear element of like the pluralistic ignorance effect, right? Where everyone goes, no one else is asking a question. Therefore, I must be the only one who is who has this question. Therefore, I will not ask my question because I'm just being stupid, right? Which is like not true, but you don't realize it's not true. And this is one way to try to combat that. And that did make lectures a little bit better, even in the large student body cases. But it's hard. I I don't have any answers, really. Just theories. Cool. I guess I'd like to circle back a bit and talk about what is your day-to-day like as a PhD candidate? There are many answers here. I want to prefix this with what your experience will be like during a PhD is going to vary enormously based on where you do it, based on who you work with, and based on what field you're in, and based on what you prefer as a person. And so it's very hard to make generalized statements. All I can really speak to is like my experience, but I'll do my best to try to generalize, especially in computer science how practical your work is, is very much up to what you're working on. Like, for example, there are people in my lab at MIT who are working on formal verification of of software. And there, there's a lot more theory. I don't think I would call it maths. Mm -hmm. It's formal theory, which like bears some resemblance to math, but it's not quite the same. In my case, I do basically no formal theory I do very little math, except in the sense of like, I want my experiments to like have statistically relevant results, that kind of stuff. But even there, computer science is really bad. Like we're arguably not a science. We're not doing science properly because most computer scientists don't know statistics, myself included among them. Like our experiments are sort of like, I ran it twice and here's a result. But in that sense, like I do almost no math. Sometimes it's useful to be able to like, do like a back of the envelope calculation type stuff, like Fermi estimation, that kind of stuff. But it's very rare. But then you have people who work in like the theory group or who work on like algorithm design, that sort of stuff, which can be quite math heavy. It's a lot of like analysis of complexity, those sorts of things. But it really varies. Even for people who are working with like the same professor at the same university in the same general area, Even there, it comes down to your preference, right? Again, like the person who's sitting next to me at MIT in my lab working with the same set of professors I am is working on like formal verification stuff. And I'm just not at all. And that's just because we have different preferences for what to work on. And so we work on different things. In terms of my day-to-day, I think it varies over the course of a project. By far the most common day-to-day operation for me is debugging, but debugging in a slightly broader sense in that it's not necessarily 
my code crashes type of bugs. It's more things like, I mean, there are certainly some of those or like performance bugs, but often it's things like this program needs to be able to do this thing. And currently it has this restriction or this limitation or this complexity. And it sort of seems fundamental. How do I get rid of it? Right. And so it becomes almost like architectural debugging. And this is basically what research is, at least in my field, right, is sort of figuring out how can we make some fundamental improvement to what this program is doing or how it is doing it. Or sometimes it's even like this problem domain doesn't currently have a satisfying solution. How do we build one? So it's, it's very much that sort of relatively open-ended debugging or thinking it takes up a lot of time. As you get closer to paper deadlines or, or a thesis deadline, like I'm working towards, the work for me becomes a lot more evaluation focused. So this becomes things like experiment design. How do you measure the thing that you want the paper to demonstrate? Or even just like, here's a graph. Does it actually show the things that we think are important? Or if it doesn't show what we think it should show, why is that and how can we fix it, right? And then there's a decent amount of just like software engineering, but that also comes down to what field you're in, right? Like I'm in a relatively programming heavy area because I work on like distributed systems and databases. It's sort of inherently very software engineering-y, but that depends on your field. Maybe we want live streams and blog posts on that as a topic. Like that seems like a goldmine there in that sense of, of information. I did one live stream on trying to fix basically an architectural bug in my research project. And I think it went decently well. People seem to be able to follow. I think the reason you don't see more is partially because most people don't like to work in the open. Mm -hmm. Like it can be anxiety inducing. It can be stressful. It's like you're working under seemingly a lot of pressure. I'm sure this is something we could talk at length about, but it, it's a difficult way of working and a different way of working. And the second is that research often doesn't lend itself very well to this because sometimes I'll spend six hours in a day working on a design that doesn't work out or just like thinking through the problem and like sketching it out on a whiteboard. I had one point where like I drew basically a union of all the SQL queries in a particular application on my whiteboard to get a sense of how they fit together. That wouldn't be interesting to watch, I don't think, because so much of it is just like basically me fumbling. It's like me trying to reach for a solution. And it's not clear that there's education in that. I think the, the reason my particular stream worked was because I had a relatively specific problem that I could sort of articulate and I had an idea for a solution. Mm -hmm. And so then what the stream became was me going through explaining the problem, explaining why I thought this was a solution, implementing the solution, and then over the course of that, discovering that the solution wasn't good enough. But that is still instructive, right? Like there, there's sort of a, a feeling of progression and of discovery and of learning there. I think if you just sort of turned on the camera randomly in some given day, it's unlikely you would get that sense of, of achievement that I think drives many of these live streams. So that they need to be a little planned and catered for. Yeah, and I've certainly experienced that as well. I do some live coding in front of students during lectures and things like that. And the few times when it wasn't planned out and I didn't know exactly what I was going to be writing and I happened upon a mistake, it is very stress-inducing. And I don't know if that's a situation that you found yourself in during live streams as well. But um, Oh, no, I, I, never, I never make mistakes, you see. Uh -huh. <laughs> No, I mean, it's true. It's it's really true. And it was funny because when I first decided to do a live stream, I was terrified. Mm -hmm. Like, I wasn't sure that I was going to do it. I was like, I think this is a really good idea, but I don't know if I have the guts to do it. But then what I did was I ordered a microphone, which like cost a decent amount of money, basically as an incentive to myself to like, I've now put money onto this. Like I, I need to do at least one. Uh -huh. And then I announced it like publicly on Twitter that I was going to do it. And I think that was the thing that made me do it the first time. If I hadn't done those things, I just wouldn't have done the first one because I was, I was like worried. And then I think 
as I started doing the stream, I didn't have too many viewers when I was doing my first ones, uh, as is natural. And I just found it really pleasant. It felt like pair programming. And maybe that was because it wasn't really a teaching situation as much as some of my later videos. It was more like, here's the thing I need, and I sort of know how to build it, and I just want to see if other people might learn from it as well. And so the people who jumped in and watched the videos with me and coded along were, were really just helping me. And so it really just gave the sense of like, we're working on this together and that's fun, mm. which was, which was a great feeling and sort of gave me that, that good taste for, I want more of this. And then I think the second thing that helped me was that I pretty early on made it explicit that I want to teach people that programmers make mistakes. I do basically no editing of my streams when I upload them afterwards. And that is because I think the mistakes are important. Mm -hmm. We've built up this culture where I think if you look, if you read like programming blog posts or tutorials or guides, or even many like edited coding streams and that sort of stuff, they're, they're so polished right. or even podcasts, like people plan out in advance what they're going to do. They know what the problems are going to be and they solve them in advance. And then really when they sit down to do the thing, they just like do it with basically no mistakes. And yeah. realistically, that's not how development works. But what we're doing is we're giving the, the people who are learning the impression that this is how normal life works when it's just this is not the case. And so I wanted the stream to showcase those errors because I think that's where a lot of the learning comes from too. It's when you make mistakes and have to backtrack and like your expectations were wrong and now you can learn from it. And so I wanted that to be a part of the teaching, which then meant that mm -hmm. when I made mistakes, it was fine because it was for teaching. Mm -hmm. I've actually been, you've been pretty inspiring in that sense. I could totally do a similar live stream. I do something already very similar for my day job. I live code a decent amount in front of students. Granted, a lot of it is also prepped beforehand, but I have also done a lot of seat of my pants live coding in front of students as well. And so it's like, it's not something entirely foreign to me and just opening that up onto a stream, like how different would that actually be? Objectively, not very, but at the same time, I am experiencing a little bit. Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It, it is terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes down to setting expectations for yourself mm -hmm. and for the people watching. Right. So the expectations you set for the people watching is what you're about to watch is like me tackling a problem and us learning mm -hmm. together. It's not me being like the perfect teacher and telling you how things are mm -hmm. done. It's for me to like share my experience with mm -hmm. you and that includes like the fact that I'm not perfect. Right. And as long as you've sort of told the audience that this is the case, that sets you up in a good position because when you make mistakes, at least my experience has been that the audience is like, oh, cool, it's a mistake. <laughs> we can figure out what went wrong together. Okay, okay. Right? Because often, like if I screw something up, sometimes it's just like stupid mistakes and then chat will be like, oh yeah, you like mistyped this variable or mm -hmm. something. And then... They feel, they understand that like people make mistakes and sometimes the mistakes are simple and sometimes the mistakes are really mm -hmm. hard, but it's like a process you have to work your way yeah. through. And then I think the second thing is setting expectations for yourself, mm -hmm. right? Like you will be making mistakes and it is okay. Yeah. In fact, making mistakes is a good thing. And that's certainly a mind yeah. shift. But once you get there, a lot of that terror goes away and just becomes more opportunities to teach. I think what I'm hearing is I need to approach it not as a teacher, which is what I do currently for my day job. I have to make a little bit of that mental shift if I'm doing like a live stream as I'm not the teacher teaching you something. We're, we're experiencing this kind of together and, and learning together. I think the other thing as well for me is figuring out what the theme would be. Oh, yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> I think I think you inspired a decent number of people. Um, I'm thinking of Ryan Levick in particular as well with this idea of, you know, let's kind of like implement foundational pieces of the Rust language. And plus, like, I feel like I just don't know that well enough myself anyway to even be able to live stream that. So I or, or maybe I shouldn't even be approaching it that way. Maybe I should be saying because I know so little about this, I should live stream it. Yeah, no, but I was about to say this, like, for many of these primitives, I didn't know how they were built. 
And so this was me being like, okay, how would I build this? And then I try to build it and see what happens, right? Like it, it does help to have some experience using them, but you don't necessarily have to have experience with them yourself, like with the implementation. For most of the, where I like re-implement parts of the standard library, I didn't actually look at the standard library first. I went with how would I implement this and then looked at the standard library. And I did so on stream so that I build out the thing and it's something that like kind of works. And then we look at the standard library and we're like, oh, they did it differently or, oh, they did it the same and then talk through that. And I think coming from a place of, I don't know what the solution is, but let's like try to figure it out is a good way to approach it. Now, I think there's value in you having more experience than the viewers because it means that at least they're learning something that might have been hard for them on their own. And I think there's value in that. But I don't think you need to, it's not like you're teaching them objective mm -hmm. truth. Like if you're a teacher, often there's like, I'm teaching you like Paxos. <sighs> And if you're teaching someone like the Paxos consensus algorithm, you need to know the Paxos consensus algorithm. You're not just going to come up with it on the spot. You're not going to just like make up a random consensus algorithm and have mm. it be correct. But in these cases, it's a little different, right? It's, it's not, you're not teaching something that's like been solved. You're just trying to teach concepts. Like when I do these programming streams, like I had a stream on like smart pointers, like ARC and, uh, and RC and like reference counted types. I wasn't really trying to teach reference counted types. Like I wasn't trying to teach reference counting. I was trying to teach a lot of different aspects of programming with Rust. And I, the way I chose to showcase that was by building RC. Hmm. But RC wasn't important, but it's, it's useful to have something concrete to work towards, both for yourself and for the people watching. Okay. And that thing doesn't have to be all that complicated because you will be making mistakes regardless, even if it's mm. simple. Gotcha. I guess to segue off of this topic, then what would kind of be like your your dream job now once once you've finished your PhD, once you've defended, I guess in this case, not attended the, the graduation ceremony. I don't know if that's something <laughs> that's going to be happening for you, which which is unfortunate in my mind, right? Because I feel like the PhD candidates obviously get the best graduation ceremony with the the tassel and stuff. It, well, it, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, my mom is actually really mad at me because I haven't attended any of my past graduation <laughs> ceremonies because I've always like moved continent before mm -hmm. they happened. And she's like, this was the one I was going to come and yeah. see you at. Oh, man. And now it's like unclear if this one's oh, happening. Oh, that's unfortunate. But... I mean, I'm sure there'll be something delayed that will be great, but it's a good question. And, and I struggle with this myself. Like, mm. like I mentioned earlier, I've sort of had this, this stretch goal for so long and now it's sort of done and I need to find something else. Mm. I haven't figured out exactly what I want to do, but I know some of the components of what I want to do. Mm. I want to keep working on Rust. I like the language enough and the community enough that I want to do that. I want to keep teaching that can totally be on my own time in the way that I currently do. But that's something I want to continue to have the opportunity to do. And I want to continue contributing to the ecosystem. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to work on an open source project, but it's more, I want to feel as though I'm working on, I'm working with Rust and I'm working on things that are going to cause me to have to find problems in the Rust ecosystem and then be in a position to fix them. And I think a part of the teaching for me is also to have some kind of community role, whether that is internally at a company, like working to be sort of a Rust point of contact or developing the infrastructure and such internally at a company for Rust, or whether that is a part of the like public Rust community, like working for Mozilla as like a community engineer or something would also be really cool. But, but I want that kind of community vibe, whether internally or, or externally. Because it just it just gives me a lot to to feel like I'm helping that directly. Yeah, I could totally see you like working with you know Nico Matsakis and you know it, <laughs> like it would, a similar role. It, it would be so cool. <laughs> Un unfortunately, as far as I'm aware, Mozilla is currently on a hiring freeze, mm. so this is like a weird time to be looking for work. But a few months ago, they announced this role of Rust community engineer, okay. which is basically like. The role description basically seemed to be all the things I just talked about. Okay. It just seemed great. <laughs> but then like 
COVID happened and now they're on a hiring freeze and that mm. position I think is still unfilled, but it's just like they can't hire me for it. And and surprisingly, there are fairly few companies that are like large and developed enough in their use of Rust to be able to take someone on not to work on their product, but to work on the Rust part of their company. Mm. And so it's, it's definitely a bit of a search. There's some roles that are more like open source, like revolve more around open source mm. that naturally have much of this in them. But I'm still like trying to navigate the landscape of what has what strikes the right balance for me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to see what comes next. Let me know if this is a topic you wouldn't don't actually want broached, but I would be a little bit curious to know how much of this job search is motivated by money for you. A lot of PhD students, I've, I've candidates that I've talked to, they're like, I'm gunning for the super high salary jobs, which is understandable. So my take on this is, has always been that I don't, I don't care about the money, except in so much that I want to not have to think about money. There's like a recursive argument here of if you don't have to think about money, that means you're making a lot of money. But but like really, I've never been sort of a, a big spender. That's like never. I, I'm pretty um, like frugal in a sense. Like I just don't buy stuff I don't need generally. And so that means that for me, like as long as I can like afford a place to live and like afford like food and like the normal things that a person needs, I'm pretty happy. Now that said, there is a huge opportunity cost in a PhD. For me, I've lived on like the MIT stipend for PhDs for six years, which is like, I forget what the exact numbers are, but I think it's like 40,000 a year is like rough. That sounds pretty good for a PhD stipend. It, it is good for <laughs> a PhD stipend. But, but yeah. in terms of opportunity cost, if I had like joined a large company instead of starting my PhD, mm-hmm. I would probably have made like six times <laughs> that, right? Like it's just yeah. the differences are just staggering. And so mm-hmm. you work up a sort of, I've lived as a student for a long time now. It would be nice to not live as a student. And I think that is a balance Mm -hmm. that like coming out of PhD, that's why many people sort of reach for more. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a nice to have for me, but it's not critical. Mm -hmm. Now I am like moving to LA, which means that comes with a bunch of costs too. For me, it's more about how well does it fit the criteria I laid out earlier for the kind of things that I want to do and the things that excite me. It's a balance of that and how interesting I think the work is mm-hmm. with like being able to sustain myself. And I've also heard a number of stories where CSPHD students like just in the middle of their research just get poached by fame companies with giant salaries, which obviously is an understandable temptation. Was that something you saw at all, especially at a school like MIT? Yeah. I mean, as a PhD student at MIT, you get approached a decent amount. And look, I don't blame them. A PhD is a really long marathon. Yeah. And you're working, it depends a little bit on your style of working, your professor's style, the lab, but you're working on one contribution and the various varieties of it for like at least four years of those six. And that means that you sort of get fed up. Uh, and and it's interesting because like for the project that I work on, I still just like, I believe so much in the idea. I think it's, I, I wish this was like a production thing that everyone could just use. And I really think it would make a lot of things like better for developers, better for users. Like I think it's a, it's a great thing. So, so why not just turn it into a startup? Because I'm so tired of it. <laughs> yeah, that's and, fair. And, yeah. and it's just it's just a sense of maybe burnout mm-hmm. is the right thing to call it. But it, it's just like saturation. Yeah. Like my brain has done nothing but think about this set of problems for six years. Mm-hmm. And I just need to think about some other problems yeah. for a while. And this is why like, I've, I've had some job offers that have been on things that are relatively similar to the research I've been doing. And even though what they're working on is interesting and cool, I've basically had to turn them down and be like, I can't do this yet. Yeah. Like I need to do something else first. That's not to say that in a few years I might not get back to it. But I think for the people who decide to leave partway through a PhD, 
that's probably partially where it comes from. Another part of it is that a PhD is a weird thing. Like mm-hmm. you're working on a relatively contained set of problems for a long time. You're working with this, like the same people in the same environment for a long time. And you need to care about what you're working on. And because no one is going to tell you to like keep working. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of self-discipline that goes into like putting yourself to work and continuing to be interested in the same thing and exploring around it and just actually making sure that you're working on something you care about and switching if you don't. And that can be a big change compared to what people are used to. And so if you like two years into a PhD or like, I'm sick of this already and a company approaches you and is like, we're going to throw money at you until you come join us. I don't blame them for leaving. Yeah. Like a PhD is a very niche thing and that's okay. Don't feel bad for leaving it if that's what you think is better for you. I've always thought that it made a lot more sense for people to have some career experience before going into a PhD, which is not generally, I think, what we see, right? Most people finish undergrad or maybe a master's and go directly into a PhD. And it didn't sound like in your case, you took any gap years off. And it just made a lot of sense to me because it's like once you have some career experience and some life experience under your belt, I feel like you would have more ideas to contribute. Maybe you'd also be able to work better with your advisor and a lot of things like that, right? Granted, you know, when you're older, money is more of an issue. Maybe you have a family, you know, that kind of thing I I totally get. But I don't know. It's just always made a lot of sense to me to have PhDs run more that way. I don't think you're wrong. The the reasons we don't see that are, there are a couple. One is that the pipeline isn't set up that way. The expectation is that if you're on like an academic track, you finish your bachelor's and then you do a PhD. And the system is a little bit set up to support that too, because when you apply, one of the big things that matter are your references. And academic references get you farther in academia than industry references. Just like in general, this is not always true, but there's like a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy there that if you continue in academia, you're more likely to continue in academia. And so if you went to work for a company for a few years, you would sort of lose some of your academic inertia and restarting that is going to be a little tough. But I totally agree with you that that having some of that experience would be very valuable, even just experience with yourself as a person. Like, how do you like to work? Because when you're doing a bachelor's, mostly the classes tell you what to do. Like there's like homework and classes and teaching. And the PhD is just like not like that at all. You, You take some classes, but on the whole, like you're running the show. Like you're your own manager, you're your own CEO. Like everything comes down to you and your advisor advises you. But it's it's your thing now for six years, and having both being a little older, but also having more of that experience, I think would would help a lot of people get through that better. I don't think it necessarily has to be industry experience. Like in my case, I worked on a, on a research project basically as a software engineer for like a year, and that gave me a lot of valuable experience, but also meant that I was a year older. And I also did my master's, which meant that I was another year older. So that helped. But I agree. I think there's value in that. And it's not impossible. Like, it's true that your references degrade a little, but as long as there's a little bit of upkeep, I think you should be able to do that. And we see some people doing it. In the PhD program at MIT, I know of some people who have come from industry. There's also, of course, a lot of people who do internships over the course of their PhD, pretty much exactly for this reason, right? That you want some industry experience to help inform your research. And I do think that the cases where we see this leads to better research too, because it means that you're working on a problem that you have some evidence is a real problem and not just an academic one. Of course, there's value in academic work for the sake of academic contributions too, but having that mix is is useful. Cool. All right. Probably a good time to go ahead and wrap this up. Anyways, I want to thank you so much, John. This was a lot of fun. I really liked hearing about your experiences. I think it'd be really cool to follow up with you in, I don't know, maybe a couple of years, I guess. We'll see if I'm still doing this then. But I think it would be really cool to kind of follow up with some of the the people that I'm talking about and see how the journey has progressed, see if opinions about open source have changed. In your case, particularly, I'd be very curious to see what you end up doing after you're done and see how your life changes. Yeah, I I mean, I I think that kind of like follow-up chat is really valuable here because... 
like certainly my thoughts on many of these things have changed significantly up through the years. And now that I'm about to like see like the industry side of things and like moving and it's just like a big change in my life at the moment. And who knows, maybe in like two years, I'll completely disagree with everything I said today. But yeah, I think that would be valuable. I agree. So we'll go ahead and wrap it up here again. Thanks so much, Sean. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, Sean. Sean and John here signing out. That concludes my conversation with John. You can find him on Twitter at John Who. You can email us at humansofopensource at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at humansofoss. That concludes today's episode of Humans of Open Source. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one.